Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Sean Quilty, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you, Brad. Long time listener. First uh, time so guest. First time guest. <laughs> Very excited. We'll get into your story in a sec, but you are a bit of a fan of the podcast. Is that right? A huge fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Are you just saying that to, to caress my no, ego? No, honestly, or? <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of podcasts out there, but this one, just the way that it focuses on the stormwater pollution, it's so closely tied to civil engineering. I love it. There's there's very few podcasts out there like that. Huge fan. Yeah, been listening for a while, so pretty humbled to be invited oh, on, to be stop honest. stop it. Stop <laughs> it. Stop it. Come on. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. We've had a lot of chats over the years, and I'm sure I'm thinking, actually, how did we first meet? How did we cross paths in the it first instance? It could have been an Ocean Protect function, like just, right. just meeting up with industry, I think. Right, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I think we both share a passion for engineering. And you are obviously Associate Principal Engineer at ADG Engineers, who are, from an Ocean Protect perspective, full disclosure, one of our best clients. But that's not why you're here, but also you're a Associate Lecturer at TAFE Queensland. You wear yeah. two very different hats, is it? Is yes, that a fair yeah, call? Yeah. But with, with a foundation of passion for engineering. So I yes. suspect we might be geeking out on some engineering. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Also. Yeah, always. <laughs> Where did this passion come from? Like, why engineering? Actually, engineering firstly, yeah. I suppose, going right back to high school, I just loved maths and science and as a 17 year old you got no idea what you're really doing and, and dad basically pushed me quite heavily to actually go into engineering so if you're good at maths and science you know it looks like there's probably heaps of jobs on the horizon you should go there all right yep sure i'll do that yeah went to griffith university on the coast on the gold coast yeah enrolled full-time didn't know what the hell an engineer was <laughs> probably surfed way too much didn't go to class enough and and basically bombed the first year, failed everything. Really? Yeah, oh my God, yeah. I would not pick that for you. <laughs> You're this beacon of engineering excellence now from my perspective. So yeah, interesting. It took a long time to get there, but it was, it was just that full-time study, getting into university, just that whole sort of environment. It just didn't sit well with me. It didn't suit me, I suppose, and, and where I was at. And still a kid, right? You don't know what you're really doing. So I was failing a heap. And dad was really questioning, what the hell are you doing? You know, <laughs> what are we going to do here? So he actually, this is pretty old school now, but he actually got the phone books out and said, right, ring all the engineering companies and just try to get a job there to see what they do, to see if you're interested. Right. And so I did, yeah, rang a heap of people and said, hey, I'll, I'll come and make coffees and sweep the floors. I just want to see what you guys do. Yeah. One of them said, yeah, come in for a coffee. It was Birchall's. They're, they're still around. Went in, had a bit of a look, ended up getting like a bit of a part-time gig there doing some drafting work. And then I toned back the study down to part-time and everything just clicked. 
just right. working, seeing what you're actually learning about, how it's used, and then going back to uni and you're actually learning all the, the fundamentals of it. I just loved it. I was like, yeah, this is great. That kind of got me through the bachelor degree. Went into the industry, working as an engineering technologist for quite a while. I hit my 30s and I researched this, right? So I was starting to feel pretty flat, pretty despondent, I suppose, going to work and, you know, what's the point? And you're doing big hours, you're working for a lot of developers or DNC contractors and you bust your gut all week only to make them slightly more profit or get the job out a bit quicker. It wasn't rewarding, right? I didn't see the point. What was the purpose? So I really started to question that. What is the purpose? Why am I doing this? And I was just in the early 30s and then I Googled feeling down. This isn't right. This isn't me. And this thrisis thing, like a 30s crisis where you do start to question what you're actually giving back to the community. What's your higher purpose, I suppose? And I don't know how it happened, whether it was coincidence or not, but the person that was next to me at work got a call from TAFE Queensland to see if they can get in for a guest lecture just to fill in this one spot. And they weren't too comfortable. I said, oh no, I couldn't do that. And I just overheard. And for whatever reason, I said, well, give me the number. I'll give him a call. And so I called him, had a bit of a chat, met up for a coffee and he goes, oh, you'll be great. You'll be excellent. Go in and, and take this class on. And that was nine years ago now and took the class and just talking to these students and, and just sharing what little knowledge I sort of had, I suppose, just sharing with people and talking about it and the engagement that you saw with the students. And they just had these little sparks of interest or questions or whatever else. I ended up going home and I never felt so good in my life. It was like the best day at work ever. And that really ignited that whole teaching education sort of avenue, I suppose. Yeah. Because that certainly from my perspective seems to be a real obvious passion, but also a clear real priority, I guess, in your career. Like obviously you do the engineering day to day and we should get into actually what that involves in a sec. But for me, it's your almost destiny seems to be around empowering the future generations of engineers, particularly with, I guess, an environment focus as well around sustainability and trying to save the world basically make it at least make engineering projects a little bit more better for the planet yeah absolutely so where's that come from there's a bit of a passion for engineering and then teaching but there's also this sort of focus on the planet it was never always with me right Mm. so when i finished my bachelor and i was working in the industry and and then went full-time working as well probably maybe similar to you so Mm. it was in consultancy civil engineering and The big focus in a lot of companies that I worked with, pretty much every one, was working for the client and you would bend over backwards for whatever Mm -hmm. they needed. And a lot of the time that's profits. So Mm -hmm. it's how can we skip, not so much cut corners, but how can we do the minimal that we need to save the most amount of money for the client? That was the focus. I mean, I remember working on music models and and looking Mm -hmm. at stormwater quality and you would get a pat on the back if you got your nitrogen was (laughs) 44.999, Yes, you did it. That's, That's perfect now stop. Don't put anything else in there. We don't need it. That was your goal, right? And and you did a good job if you did that. So I just grew up in that and Mm. and you don't know what you don't know. And that was a long time, years and years I was working like that. And then I guess just seeing the climate change evidence. Mm. And as much as I hate social media, I think it's one of the best things that's happened for the world and for the environment because you're just getting bombarded with all this information from all around the world and you had no idea. And I guess that's where the environmental interest came into it. Mm. And I thought, well, hang on a second, I might not be doing the right thing or the best thing. I I think I'm doing a great job every day, but I'm, I'm really starting to question that. So that kind of led me down that avenue, I suppose, and just starting to research my own information. Like you never want to believe anything that somebody tells you, but you do want us to look into it a bit more. Sure. And I think everyone's got to sort of look through that lens now sooner rather than later, right? Absolutely. And it's such 
a familiar story, people get involved in engineering, sometimes because it's just a safe job or you're going to get it. There's a more likelihood of getting a nice paying job out of an engineering degree as opposed to an arts degree or a philosophy degree or something like that. And you do work in, for example, in consultancy or wherever the client might be, and you are basically a pawn in the client's game almost, and you are often doing what the client wants to the detriment of your own ethics. A lot of consultants or employees or engineers can go in a number of different ways. A lot of them just keep on doing what they've always done, and that can be for various reasons, but it takes a very different individual to sort of question it. And actually, mm. you, you say, oh, I want to look into it further. I, I know a lot of engineers and just people in general who just don't want to know anything about what might be contradictory to their current actions. Yeah. I and mean, that's often a really hard sell. But to go down that path and go, yeah, I want to look further into it, and then I want to inspire the new generation of engineers and scientists or planners or whatever yeah. to do further. It's amazing. And you're still working a five-day-a-week job for 8EG engineers. And I was talking to you about this yesterday. We're at this Blue Green by 32 event in Brisbane. And you were saying how you were working still five days a week in addition to this the Tate Queensland gig, which I found incredible. Yeah. Like a lot of people go, oh, I haven't got time to help give back or anything, but yeah. you do. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, and I mean, selfishly, I do it because I, I feel great afterwards mm. and teaching these people that are coming into the industry. And now, because I've been doing it for a while now, I work with a heap of ex-graduates from TAFE and you see how brilliant they are mm. and their minds and the stuff that they're doing. And I think this is just awesome that I had even just a tiny little contribution to that, or I just maybe helped push them in the right direction. You can't get that anywhere else, I don't think, in the industry. It, but it's it's yeah. incredible. And how do you compare that to your student experience? I think mine was probably similar to yours. I don't want to be critical, but academics who have been in the academic industry for a very long time, often several decades, often with a lack of, a, I guess, insight into current problems and current innovations or current practice, whatever. And dare I say, they're not as inspiring or at least engaging as they could be. What was your experience? Yeah, look, so I've gone to uni twice now. So I, I had the bachelor degree straight out of high school and then I did my master's degree four years ago mm. or something. So in, in my mid to late 30s, the bachelor degree coming straight out of high school, it was almost like you're just sort of floating. You're just sort of being pushed around to get through the curriculum. I remember there was one lecturer, Mark Bolton, and he was the only lecturer that actually worked as an engineer in the industry. And we loved his classes. Yeah, really, it was yeah. so engaging. Mm. He would talk about all the stuff that he did out in the real world mm. on, on a job or whatever else. And then he'd swing straight away back to the equations or the theory mm. that we were looking at on the board. You just connect the two and you're like, oh, this is cool. This yeah. is interesting. That's yeah. what I might do. So I think there's a little bit of that, I suppose. I think, and again, this is only my own opinion, but I found when I studied my master's, being a bit older, a bit more mature, being in the industry for a while, I had the most fun, even though it was quite stressful and I had my second baby at the same time, <laughs> uh, working full-time at TAFE actually, and then doing like a, a part-time gig contracting in the industry and then studying. But it was the most enjoyable study experience that I've ever had yeah. from, from high school all the way through. I wonder if that's maybe a better way to, to look at it where you do your, I don't know if it's a bachelor or whatever, but you study straight out of high school for a bit, but actually go and work for a while and then yeah. go back and study. I think that might be just a lot more beneficial. I think you'll learn a lot oh, more. Absolutely. I made that mistake as well. I, I finished high school straight out university. I obviously teach at university and I've been doing that for 16 years. Without exception, the best students are always the mature age students who have at least spent a, a year, often more, in the industry or at least doing 
something else, getting some real world experience. I find after how many years of high school going straight into university, it's just another year of education, yeah. another year yeah. of someone throwing information down your throat. It's tough work. I've said for a long time, if I was Prime Minister of Australia, I'd bring a mandatory 12-month either community or military service yeah. after high school. Because yeah. I just don't think high school students are ready to yeah. even, not even necessarily go out into a university or whatever they might do, but just go out into the big bad world in general. Just mm. spend a year just with some good structure, good discipline, particularly within community sort of engagement. You know, just see what the issues are in the community yeah. or in the in the broader area, apart from your schoolmates and your yeah. parents. You know, yeah. what, so full disclosure, I've got a nephew, Jackson, shout out. He's a big fan of the podcast. I'm sure he'd be a big fan of yours, uh, Sean, as well. But he's in that position, like he's looking to finish high school, wants to, to considering engineering. But my advice is don't go straight out of university. Yeah. Take a year out, even just chilling, surfing, whatever you want to do. Would that be as a general, because we get a lot of I, young people listening to this yeah, podcast. I think so. Yeah. I, I don't think that's a bad idea at all. Yeah. And and you're right. You've, you've got to go into the community, into society mm. and, and see what's working, what's not working. And there's a very good chance that you'll actually get out of that with a little bit of an idea of what your purpose might be or what 100%. your direction might be. Yep. And then wouldn't that be a better time to actually choose what am I going to invest 50 grand for yeah. uni fees or whatever else in four years of my life, eight years if it's part-time or whatever. That makes a lot more sense to actually have that direction and have at least a little bit of an idea. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to doing what your parents want you to do. Yeah. It goes or, straight into it. Yeah. And, or reading a brochure going, oh yeah, I think I might want to be an occupational therapist because I saw a movie yeah. or something like yeah. that. That just doesn't make any sense. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, no, I've, I've had a bit of a, a mixed sort of experience. I think out of that, I, I really see you've got to be a lifelong learner and it doesn't mean university or, mm. or TAFE even. It's just always keeping your mind open and always trying to improve what you're currently doing or questioning, mm. you know, this is business as usual. Should we still be doing this? Mm. And you just have to look through history and you realize that some of our best improvements or innovations come from analyzing the mistakes that we made, oh, or, you know, the wrong things that we've done. Yeah. And then you just switch it and, and turn it. So how do you do that if you go to high school, say go to university for four yeah. years while you're very young and then do nothing for the rest of your career, 30 years, 40 years in your career, and you're still basing your judgments on stuff that you learned mm. decades ago? Yeah. Is that the right thing to do? It may not be. It sort of questions the whole, what are the best learning methods as well? Like you mentioned issues facing the planet and climate change, and there's a number of different ways I guess you can learn about it. Historically, 20 years ago, there were a very small number of ways. You either read mm. a book or go to university yeah, yeah. Or, uh, or go to college or whatever. Nowadays, obviously, there's documentaries, there's Netflix with a bazillion documentaries, there's various movies, There's you can literally travel the world via YouTube or Skype yeah. or FaceTime, whatever. And obviously, the podcast media, as well. I found this an incredible, like, and we don't take this for granted, this is an incredible opportunity to reach so many people that we just physically wouldn't be able to. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing privilege. We talked about how I feel as though I'm in the front seat of a masterclass, environmental protection and activism. And just, and it's just an amazing way to foster collaborations as well. Before we got on the microphones in front of us, I mentioned how Ocean Protect, for example, have got this really fantastic collaboration going on with CSIRO, which is our leading national science agency. And that has come about as a direct result from a single podcast chat, mm. which has led it's to amazing. other things. It's amazing. Yeah. In your teaching role, you obviously probably tried a few different learning yeah, techniques. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, What yeah. works and what doesn't? It's pretty simple when you really break it down. Mm. And I'm still learning. I'm not, no. I don't profess to be an expert at teaching. And what's really helped in the industry is that all of the stuff that I've learned lecturing and interacting with people, my current role, I actually spend half of my time doing the same thing for ADG internally for all the offices. So it's all training and, and development, but there's also the soft skills for it as well. You actually 
teaching engineers and designers and draftspeople how to interact with people, how to communicate on paper, obviously engineering plans and that sort of thing. So it's an interesting skill set that I think a lot more people need to have in the industry. To come back to your question, like I think first and foremost, you need to focus on what we call active learning. You hit the nail on the head. So previously, and even some of uh, the schools today, I suppose, your learning approach is the kids come into class, they sit down at a desk, they're silent, they mm. don't move, and then you listen to the lecture on the whiteboard or whatever else. Eight hours later, then you go home and then you just read a heap of the notes that we just talked about. That worked a couple hundred years ago when the students would essentially be pushed into a factory and you'd just be doing mm. the same repetitive mm. task over and over. If we're still doing that now at schools and universities, I think that's just a massive failing and something that I'm still learning about. I'm only just scratching the surface, but when you're teaching, you're dealing with people that the content goes out the window. That's not what we're focusing on. It's people. And it's, I always say it's the process, not the product. So what I'm actually talking about, that's neither here nor there. It could be stormwater pollution. It could be post-tension slabs or whatever else, but it's the process. How are we actually getting there and what are we actually doing? And so active learning is all about engagement. That's your biggest focus. You've got to engage with the people that you're trying to teach with. And then from that, there's a whole heap of different techniques that you can use to get that engagement, to get that active learning. I mean, a couple that I use at TAFE, what we call FLIP learning. So it's an acronym, F-L-I-P. And the idea is you give them all the boring stuff, all the slides, all the lectures, all the formulas, give it to them before they turn up to class and say, look, just skim through it. You've got to get a bit of an idea of what we're looking at. When they're in class, there is no lecture. It's not me talking for three hours and you taking notes. You've already got the notes. So the lecture is that really valuable time where you interact and you discuss. So you can talk about the topics that you had on the slides or whatever, or you have an assignment or a project that you work on together collaboratively. So that's another method or technique, I suppose, that I've used, that flip learning. The other one is project-based learning as well. And, and that works really well at TAFE because uh, like we said before, you go in to study and if you haven't been in the industry, you've got no idea why you're studying, what's the end outcome. And so project-based learning is where we will create a project and we'll just instill all the theory within the project itself. So the focus is on the actual doing. So as an example, at TAFE Queensland, for example, at the associate degree, I developed the civil portion of this engineering project they do right at the end of the degree, just before they get into the industry. And we basically replicate what you would do in the industry. So you look at a, a site for development and you start at a planning phase and you look at the environmental opportunities and constraints. Uh, you look at stormwater and sewer and water and earthworks, roadworks, all, all the basic sort of stuff that we generally look at. But the project is all about that actual development. And so then you start to put in all the theory that you kind of learned throughout the last couple of years. But the fact that it's a project and they can physically see what they're trying to do and what the end outcome is, that encourages a lot more engagement. The students understand why they're doing it. And then all of a sudden they're excited. They know what they're doing. They're not just being prodded and saying, hey, read these textbooks and then do well in the exam. It's a completely different approach. And that's been very, very successful. And, and that's something that I then push back into the industry as well. And so if we're trying to teach our up and coming engineers and designers we do the same thing. How do we get them engaged? How do we find out what their passions are, what their interests are? And then we let them sort of guide us where they're going to go rather than try to hold them down into a mold. It's no wonder that I guess we're facing some of the planetary crises that we are, because I think fundamentally the educational system has been designed and implemented to create almost sheep, yeah, uh, people yeah. who are just 
do what they're told, don't question the status quo and just repeat the, yeah. the same practices that have been done for the last 10, 20, 100, 200 years type yes. thing. Yeah. What we really need from my perspective is a, a new generation of people to just challenge the status quo and do things differently. Yes. You know, we're not going to save the planet with the same mindset that created the same, uh, the it's problems just, that we're now yeah, facing. That's right. So, yeah. but from my perspective, I see the students in your class. You have me in a, a couple of guest lectures and I, and I come in probably towards the end of some of your uh, sessions and you can see the sparkle in the students' eyes. Yeah, right. Um, you can see how engaged they are, how interested they are, how much they actually really respect you as well. And it's great to see. And it's such a stark contrast to my university experience. <laughs> so my, I'll give you an ex example. So I've been teaching at Griffith University for, uh, well, I think it's about 15, 16 years now. And there is no class. It's all virtual. I don't get to see their <laughs> eyes. I, I like to think that there, there is a bit of sparkle in yeah, their eyes when yeah. they're listening to me and I'm waxy lyrical about saving the planet, but I don't know. And I fundamentally, because of that geographic boundary, like literally in a Teams meeting with, and all I can see is generally the first- uh, The initials, left, right? The initial, yeah, not yeah. even the face, yeah. not the webcam. So yeah. Angela is A and, and Barry is B. <laughs> and, and I'm there, you know, cracking jokes, whatever. <laughs> Nothing. It's yeah, like crickets. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, where, where's the active learning? Learning, right? Yeah, There's all, no activity. They're all on mute. I yeah. can't see them. I literally, I physically <laughs> cannot interact with them. And I'm always saying, turn your microphones off. You know, at least when I'm telling a, what I would perceive to be a funny joke, <laughs> turn your microphone on, on so just so I could hear something. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I look at that from my perspective as that's the university experience. So you can do an engineering degree, I'm guessing a whole bunch of other degrees completely remotely, which I think is obviously uh, hugely advantageous to people who can't physically get to yes. the, uh, the university or wherever the, the campus might be. Yeah. But it was interesting talking to you yesterday is that to do your TAFE degree, at least the engineering uh, component of it that, that you uh, lead, you have to be in class. And I said to you, doesn't that mean students just can't get there and do the degree. And you're like, well, we still get plenty of students turning up. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. One feeds the other as well. If they're excited to come to class and, and they're engaged, they'll do whatever is necessary mm. to actually get there. And and so if that's traveling quite a distance or staying literally the whole day, we have classes right until nine o'clock at night. Mm. If you keep them engaged and actually feed their passion and their interests, they'll find a way to do that. Um, obviously, there's reasons why you would have remote learning as well, and sure. there's a place for that, but that can't be the one and only way of learning, right? But my point is, it is. Yeah, it is for yeah. the next generation of engineers who are at least doing a bachelor degree in engineering, yeah. at least from the university I talk to, it is the way they're doing it. So mm. that's why I'm just quite surprised that 
yeah. your institution is taking a completely different approach to mine, yeah. Um, yeah. which I, I think your guys are making the right decision. Mm. But fundamentally, these students, I don't mean to criticise the students because they could be as eager as possible and they're still paying very, very large sums of money to do this degree and be uh, given this knowledge and interact, whatever. The value of that educational experience is so much lower than it really yeah. could and should be. Yeah. The other thing, and I think it's a responsibility that, that we all have as educators, whether you're in the industry or whether you're actually at a, a educational facility or whatever, we've got a responsibility to look after the students. And so if they come in and they're excited or they're enthused or they see the climate crisis that we currently have and they'd think, I've just got to do something. God knows how I do it, but I've just got to do it. We've got a responsibility to make sure that we don't snuff that flame out, right? We, we've got to make sure that we empower them so they continue on that journey. And this is kind of why I do the educational side of things as well, because I can't do a lot as just one person. But if I can help push all these brilliant people that are coming through every single semester, every single year, guaranteed a few of them, if not a lot of them, are going to do great things. And yeah, the difference between, I guess, a, a good teacher and a bad teacher, mm. a bad teacher won't encourage that mm. and they'll just drop off. They'll mm. lose interest. Mm. And, and isn't that a, a terrible thing to yeah. think, right? You're losing all those people that could be providing a solution. Yeah. And obviously solving the problems of current humanity, particularly from my perspective, we're in desperate need of environmental scientists and engineers mm. and yes. planners and basically people who are going to come up with solutions or help drive innovations and solutions to help better protect humanity. Mm. But they're often not even bothering to do the degree that maybe could that would actually benefit in them in that role. Yeah. But even when they're getting there, they're sitting in front of a computer screen, basically watching the equivalent of a YouTube video of someone teaching somewhere else. Mm. And that ability to be inspired is dramatically yeah. diminished. Yeah. And even the focus on environmental engineering in the curriculum, that's something that I've been really hammering hard. So at Take Queensland, we have an advisory committee and it's made of the teaching staff and then industry experts and even Engineers Australia get into when they re-accredit the program mm. every four years to make sure it's it's mm. up to standard. Mm. When EA come in and sort of investigate and interrogate the program, a big part of the committee's role is to actually make sure that the students are coming out as we need them for the industry. Mm. And in this case, with the climate crisis, we need to make sure that the students are equipped with environmental engineering knowledge and practices and they understand a bit of ecology and just information about the climate, mm. really. Mm. One of the things that, that I struggled with was in a lot of institutions when they're teaching engineering, environmental engineering was an elective yeah. and I think straight away that just paints the wrong picture mm. it's you could choose to look after the environment or you couldn't and fundamentally we yeah. have to look at the environment <laughs> in everything we do yeah. it's, it should be if, a mandatory part of all a curriculum isn't it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah and, and, and across all engineering fields yeah. It, yeah. it's you know we've gone through that chartered process at Engineers Australia yeah. and when you look at the competencies and, and the pillars and the framework that they have Engineers Australia basically say it's the environment society and economy and it's in that order they're the three pillars. Mm. They're the things that we need to focus on in anything and everything that we do mm. as an engineer or an engineering associate or an engineering technologist. So to say that environment's number one, EA is telling us that's number one, but then you go to study and they go, oh, well, you could do it or yeah. not. You know, <laughs> you could do another thing. You could look at something else, concrete structures or something. And so we've been pushing very hard and we're starting to get a little bit of traction here to actually instill a lot more environmental engineering in every single unit, even if it's just a couple lectures or a guest lecture like you have, yeah. you've done in the past mm -hmm. where you go in and talk about 
water sensitive urban design yeah. and you talk about stormwater pollution and you just get that awareness. And I think that's got to be a bit of an industry change, a shift, if you like, because when we went through our bachelors back in the day, there was no awareness. It was just not even on the radar. Yeah. I think that's another shift that we need to do in the industry. And it should be no surprise that if that environmental component of an engineering degree is an elective, the uh, it should be no surprise that the outcomes that we're getting for our engineering projects yeah. can either choose to do environmentally friendly stuff or, or not. Yeah, It's yeah, bizarre, absolutely. like that whole attitude around being sustainable and protecting the planet is an optional extra. I've seen it firsthand for you know civil and, and particularly civil engineering projects. It's often like the first line item that's cut out yes. of the budget. It's like, <laughs> oh, our best practice erosion sediment control. Oh, how much is that going to cost me? Cross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what And it's no wonder they were left with a whole bunch of asphalt, a whole bunch of yeah. cement and basically unlivable environments. Yeah, yeah. It's and, bizarre. And it, it comes back to what you mentioned before where as an engineer, you're looking at guidelines and, and you, I guess you're trying to do the right thing and then the guideline says this and then you tick and you just keep going through the process. Obviously, we don't have endless amounts of, of money and time and resources, so you try to do as quickly as possible. But that's one of the big fundamental flaws, I suppose, like the state planning policy that was brought out you know, years and years ago and we looked at uh, stormwater pollution and pollution reduction targets. That was great to start. But why should we be continuing to do that decades on? It's crazy. And I remember giving a, a talk. So it's kind of like a lecture at work, pretty much. We have these national technical presentations and you just mm. talk about something innovative or whatever. And this was a couple of years ago now. And I questioned that and I got everyone to sort of think about it. And I said, is this the right thing? And a lot of people sort of spoke about it and said, oh, well, you know, it's great. Our reduction rate is 90% gross pollutants and 45% total nitrogen we're saving. And I said, no, 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 no. You're releasing 65%. Mm. You're releasing 10% of all mm. those gross pollutants. You're letting that go out in the environment. You've got to switch the way that you're actually thinking about it and not just rely on those guidelines. And I brought up a few things, and obviously I'm, I'm speaking to the, the guru here. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we, we look at, instead of looking at the targets, we should be looking at uh, total annual loads. How much are we releasing? What does that percentage actually look like? We're talking about percentages. It could be a kilogram of gross pollutants or it could be a ton or it could be a hundred ton. We have no idea on the, the project. Right? <laughs> we, we should do a quick explanatory note because we're, we're going to gig out on stormwater pollution <laughs> yeah, real quick. <laughs> and so all the stormwater professionals that are tuning in and going, oh man, he's talking my love language, but everyone else is going, what the hell is he talking about? What is the gross pollutant and what is 80% removal? So in uh, and the state planning policy, for example. So that was a policy that was written, I think, 20 years ago that specified for any new development above a certain size, I think it's like six dwellings or more, or 2,500 square meters in size. So basically a decent size development. Anything bigger than that, you've got to demonstrate what I referred to as best practice pollution removal targets. Asterisk to that is that that they aren't really best practice. And you were talking that. So you have to achieve a, a percentage reduction of your the pollution load that you produce. And it's 80% for total suspended solids loads, which is just basically dirt and some nutrient removal rates and gross pollutants. And gross pollutants is basically anything like a cigarette butt or bigger. Anything bigger than five millimetres, that's like a gross pollutant, which means litter, which means plastic in our environment, which no one wants. As part of a new development, you only have to achieve 90% gross pollutant removal. You can still have that 10% of plastic pollution and whatever else discharging to our environment. And obviously, there's the 80% removal rates. So yeah, there is certainly still a residual load. Now, those so-called best practice targets, so two things, they're actually widely considered to be the bare minimum of what can be considered practical and reasonable. And that was a bare minimum 20 years ago. If we haven't innovated better in 20 years to come up with, a, with some technologies to produce a, a higher quality of water coming off our development sites, 
we should just go home. But fundamentally, we have. We know we can well and truly exceed that target. But fundamentally, compliant with those bare minimum targets does not necessarily mean that the waterways are protected. In fact, it's actually almost certain to mean that there's actually more pollution going into our waterways than was current was produced pre-development. Mm, that's right. Yeah. So, and that sort of stuff, everyone in our industry, in the storm industry, recognizes that. But no one challenges that status quo. Like mm. there's talk, there'll be like a committee and all that sort of stuff, and they'll write a guideline and a policy paper and whatever. But fundamentally, in 20 years, nothing's changed. I personally think it's symptomatic of the educational system that you're talking to. We've created a whole bunch of professionals that are very reluctant to to do things differently, Mm. to challenge the status quo, to drive for better than bare minimum. We've had a few jobs, a lot of people probably have around the Noosa sort of area. I grew up going there for Christmas holidays and stuff. So, oh, I went I to school the there. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. It's a beautiful yeah, spot. Beautiful like, part really of the world. Yeah. Pristine, yeah. you know, forests and everything else. This job popped up a little while ago. If you're in a high ecological value area, you forget those targets and you actually do a pre-develop versus post-develop analysis. Yep. And so whatever pollution was there currently, we'll take that on the chin. Whatever you do as a development, it cannot exceed those pre-development mm-hmm. conditions. And I think that's something that we need to push a little bit harder and actually make that across the board. Why shouldn't we do that across the board? If we know our waterways are getting polluted and we know yeah. the environment pollution that's getting out there, clearly the targets aren't working because we are releasing. Every development that we produce, we are going to produce pollution and we're releasing a lot of that pollution straight away. Switch it back to a preverse post and if there was just pristine rainforest there and there was virtually no pollution, well, let's keep it that way. And then that's how your waterways are going to survive, right? You've got to question why we're doing it. Yeah, really think long and hard, how do we change this industry? But it is difficult though, particularly when you're working as a consultant for a client, if you come along and say, hey, Mr. Developer in Noosa, we've got to do more to better protect our waterways from pollution, which fundamentally from their perspective means it's going to cost them more money. How do you manage yeah. that? Yeah. Because <laughs> like, you're saying, I want you to spend more money. Yeah, uh, that's right. And keep in mind, okay, you're a consultant. I can walk down the street and get 10 other people to f- tell me the answer that I want to hear, which means I can get away with the bare minimum. How yeah. do you manage that interaction? I think we've got to flip the way that we value, and a lot of people are doing this, the way that we value the environment and the natural assets, and we've got to sell it to the developers so they actually see the value more importantly, we need to generate an ROI, a return on investment for them so it becomes a no-brainer. And they go, of course, why wouldn't I do that? The only way we're going to do that is not the civil engineers going and talking to them or the environmental scientists going to talk to them. We've got to collaboratively come together and produce solutions that really do work and then bring that whole solution and that that collaborated sort of approach. We need to bring that to them. Mm. I think the easiest way is actually look at a couple of case studies, mm. look at some success mm. stories and show them and say, look, this developer, because you're right, a lot of them are just interested in the, the, the bottom line. And we'll say these developers made X amount of profit mm. because yep. they did this and the value of the properties are still holding strong because they have parklands, because they've got waterways, because young families want to move into that development. That's got to be the approach, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Developer will often be focusing on the bottom line and if they can see value in doing something better than the status quo, I'd say 95% of the time they will do it. I think from my perspective, and it comes down to our discussion around education before, it's also demonstrating, I guess, the uh, emotional value in it as well. Like We know that 
for example, we, like if it was purely focused on stormwater, we know that a lot of people are really concerned about the amount of pollution in our oceans and waterways. Stormwater is the major source of that pollution. You know, 80% of all ocean plastic comes from stormwater. How best to mitigate that is obviously stopping at source. Now, that can be treatment, ideally be at source management as in not generating the pollution in the first place. But if you're a young family with a, a two kids who are most kids, from my perspective, are like all for protecting the environment. They know everything about stormwater. Yes. They know more about stormwater than most en- stormwater engineers I know. Uh, so they know all about plastic and, and straws and, and fishing nets and climate change. And they are, have a real concern around the future. Mm-hmm. So if you've got two or one or two or three little kids in that family choosing between a development that, that looks you know really nice and green and, and clear water versus the stock standard cookie cutter, wall-to-wall development, asphalt, concrete. I know the kids are going to be involved in that decision making yeah, process. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and you spot like having two young kids, right? So they, they keep you honest. They yeah. really do. And even back to the educational side of things, I remember, so shout out to Willow. I know she'll be listening eventually, <laughs> uh, but she was in year three, I think. So she would have been what, seven years old, or eight years old or something. I still remember I came off of a, a committee meeting with the industry and we were talking about the environment mm-hmm. and, and how we need to improve a few things. Anyway, I came off and it was like eight o'clock at night and I went to tuck her to bed and she said, oh, how did you, your meeting go, dad? And I said, yeah, I was just teaching people about the environment. We've got to look after the environment. And she actually quoted a whole heap of stuff that you're right, engineers would not know about. And we talked about stormwater. She said, yeah, a lot of the rubbish actually comes from the roads and all of the, <laughs> all of the pits and the holes in the ground and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God, this is just amazing. And then we were talking about agriculture. So I said, yeah, and you know, there's a lot of farms and, and a lot of cattle. And she goes, yeah, well, the cattle, all of their burps and farts, they actually put all bad gas. She's a seven year old. I, yeah. I was just gobsmacked and, 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 at the same time, I was just so thankful that we are changing, like the curriculum in schools. Mm. They, they are teaching this sort of stuff. Um, I still remember she quoted the the water cycle to me she, <laughs> and proper terminology. She, she, wow. She'd talk about evaporation, precipitation, collection, transportation. My jaw just hit the floor. And so I had to stop. I said, don't go to sleep. Wait here. I went into the, the office. I grabbed one of my old uni books from back at, straight out of high school. And I found a page that had the water cycle with those terms. And I said, well, I had to wait until I was like <laughs> mid-20s, years into university before I even learned about that stuff. That's amazing that you know it. She goes, yeah, of course. Like, you know, why wouldn't you know it? That's a seven-year-old. Yeah, so, that's amazing. Yeah, so it, it is good to see that it, it, there is going to be a change Hopefully, but well, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a story. It's similar. We did a, an ocean protected a nationwide survey uh, in 2009. We actually asked, uh, okay, all this plastic in the ocean, where is it coming from? And it was a multiple choice question. We said, what's the number one source of ocean plastic? Littering at the beach, is it commercial fishing nets? Is it stormwater or is it sewage like microplastics from your, your bathrooms, et cetera? Long story short, a thousand person survey, all demographics, all age groups, and it was basically split between the four. So basically 25% in each of those options. No one, you know, really knew. They were kind of guessing. And I go to meetings with stormwater engineers. Never forget there was one. I won't mention their company name. It wasn't ADG, I promise you. You guys have got, you guys have got it all sorted, you know what I mean? Jesus. Um, but the, I actually asked them, okay, well, what do you guys think? The same question. All the hands went up, commercial fishing or, or sewage, and, and no one put it up there for stormwater. Wow. I'm like, uh, <laughs> you guys are stormwater engineers, right? And I'm like, uh, it is stormwater. And, the, and there's like, I remember this one guy's like, until you said this, I never made the connection. But I know sometimes when I go surfing after a rainfall event, I get a sore 
your ear. And I never really thought about it until I, you know, <laughs> you, you, and I'm like, anyway, a, a few months later, I go to my niece's school, Camp Hill Primary School, shout out, little Miller, uh, and I was a big fan of the podcast. I think she was nine at the time. So imagine two or 300 nine-year-olds and I ask them the same question. 99% of the two or 300 nine-year-olds the hand up and said, yeah, it's stormwater. Uh, I was just like, oh my <laughs> God. And for me, it shows the value of education. Yes. And clearly the next generation of planeteers have got their head around what the key issues are and what the causes are. And from my perspective, that will make it just so much easier to drive change and help better Absolutely. protect our planet and yeah. ultimately us. Well, you imagine them standing in political uh, sort of roles, yeah. engineering roles, lawyers, people of significant power, mm. but they've got the right mindset and they've got the right yeah. focus and that's where the change will come. Yeah. But the problem is I'm, I'm not going to wait another 20 years before, mm. you know, Willow enters the industry. That's too long. We yeah. can't wait that long. Mm. So it is educating, right? It's it's going back to the old school way of thinking or the old school engineers and, and, and scientists and really trying to um, just give them the right information, give them the right knowledge so they can actually make their own decision. And 99%, 100% of them will actually see the evidence, see the science, and it's pretty clear what we have to do and what we have to change. And I think that's that's what, what we need. We need that big shift. We need that share that information, share that knowledge around, right? And thank goodness we have guys like Sean Quilty uh, in the in the box seat to help drive that. And look, we could have got to land this plan at some point. This has been a fantastic chat. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I know it's a little bit different for an engineer to come on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I feel as though we could talk all day. From my perspective, from the bottom of my heart, from all on behalf of all your students and all the people you change their way of thinking, thank you so much for all your efforts and enthusiasm. I'm sure you put in a lot, so much energy. It's time consuming, but uh, the world is a better place because of you. So no, thank you so no. much. Thank you, Brad. No, I appreciate that. And no, it's it's honestly, it is that next generation, right? It's the people that do question what we're doing and, and they've got that passion, that interest. We should be thanking them really. They're the people that we've got to focus on. But I love it. I love being here. Thanks so much for the podcast. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely keep on listening. Boom, boom, shake the roof. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.